Ladies and gentlemen, hello, and thanks for joining us on the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and with me in the studio is our summer intern, Sophie Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I'm happy to be here. Today is July the 31st, 2014, and we're really excited to be able to present to everyone this special series of podcasts we did using our mobile podcasting unit, which we rolled out to a special event that happened between July 19th and 21st. It was the 74th annual meeting of the Japan Society of Animal Psychology, and it was done entirely in English for the first time. That's right. So this year's uh, president of the organizing committee was none other than Kyoto University Primate Research Institute's own Professor Tetsuro Matsuzawa. And there were a number this time, a number of invited speakers from all over the world who joined this annual congress. So it seemed to be a good time then to make it as international as possible. And by doing that, or in doing that means making everything in English. So it was really nice for a lot of the international students here too. Yeah, we had over 15 invited guests. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get everybody, but we wanted to mention a few of the talks that we weren't able to uh, cover through this podcast. So um, one of my favorite talks was from Dr. Vincent Janik from the University of St. Andrews, talking about signature whistles in dolphins and reference with learned signals and cetacean communication. Yeah, that was really cool. So I'm, I've been a bit familiar with his work, especially the signature whistle stuff, which is obviously really fascinating um, from the perspectives of uh, understanding human language, uh, that dolphins have like such a, an amazing capacity for vocal learning as well. And another of the speakers that we really wanted to get on the podcast, but unfortunately could not, was uh, Dr. Michael Platt, who's at Duke's Institute for Brain Sciences. And he was talking about a really interesting topic, deception. And so how, um, in his case, monkeys, uh, probably rhesus monkeys, react in competitive strategic settings against other animals. And, And what was really interesting was when he showed himself playing a version of this game against one of the macaques. Yeah, so for the listeners to visualize this, just imagine Pong. So you've got monkeys with joysticks, uh, human opponents with joysticks, and in some cases there were monkeys playing against each other. That's right, and so the point of the research was to determine whether or not the monkeys could anticipate the strategies used by the opponent in either the trying to be the shooter in use the example of, of hockey, which was great for me as a Canadian, um, but a penalty shooter versus the goalie, uh, basically, and, and how they anticipate the other player's uh, strategy and then try to deceive them to be successful themselves. And so that was really interesting stuff. And on top of the uh, behavioral experiments, I mean, he includes things like eye tracking to better understand the motivation, where they're looking before they do the deceptive action, as well as a, a number of neuroscience experiments where they look at which parts of the brains are lighting up during these processes. We also had a really nice, maybe a little bit more of a philosophical talk from Dr. Ralph Adolphs from uh, Caltech. And he was talking about some of the issues of how to define emotion and how to test it in non-human animals. That's right. So the, the, the basic problem was emotion, something that humans take for granted. We all experience emotion, but how far does that extend to non-human animals? And what are the fundamental components of that? And so what he was talking about was that there are so many different definitions used by scientists um, for the concept of emotion that it, for some people it kind of breaks down and, and might lose all meaning. But, but he actually stood by the definition, as, especially as an important uh, way to motivate future research and, and keep this as kind of a coherent field of study. We didn't have to travel too far to get all of these interviews. It was here in Inuyama where we went to the conference and there were over 100 presentations. We had some special lectures, symposiums, plenary talks, oral presentations, and posters. Yeah, it was a really busy event stretched out over those three days. And uh, 
the general theme for the entire conference was develop a better understanding of human nature, uh, obviously through the lens of the animal mind, uh, which the animal psychology comes in to play here. So in this first installment, we're going to listen to five different guests talk about the three M's. We've got metacognition, mental time, and metaphorical mapping. The first speaker in today's podcast is Dr. Michael Barron. So he works at the Language Research Center of Georgia State University, and he was invited to this conference to participate in a special symposium on mental time travel. Most of us imagine mental time as happening physically on a physical axis. Yet what these researchers are talking about is this capacity to remember and, and imagine a future. So here's Dr. Barron elaborating on that. Mental time travel is sort of one of these tricky terms that, that is floated around often in, in comparative cognition. And basically what it involves is, is thinking about one's own personal future or one's personal past. And those, those thoughts and those anticipations of the future or reflections on the past contain that element of, of one's own self being involved. So if you are mentally time traveling into your past, it's about a specific episode or it's an autobiographical memory in which you recognize your own role in the event that you're remembering. If you're talking about a perspective episodic experience, you're anticipating your own future with you in it. So the idea of mental time travel is that idea of the, the sort of quality that accompanies the, the information that, that makes it unique to you. And so it's highly controversial as to whether non-human animals experience this, although it's also controversial as to whether one need invoke mental time travel to understand other aspects of human memory. And our research team has been really interested in future-oriented cognitive processes, starting with very simple things like planning for the very immediate future, just anticipating and sequencing events over a short temporal scale and then looking at broader aspects of planning and formal perspective memory circumstances and so perspective memory is simply remembering to do something later so it's the encoding and retention and then retrieval of a future a future activity or action that one needs to complete and we're very curious as to whether non-human animals can exhibit perspective memory and if they're perspective memory performances can approximate those of adult humans. So we asked Dr. Barron to elaborate, uh, give us some examples uh, of this idea of mental time travel in humans. And in so doing, he actually really does show us the significance of, of this work and, and the implications that it might have. Perspective memory for all of us is fragile. It's why we forget to attach attachments to our emails. It's why we forget to pick up something from the grocery store on the way home. And in much more tragic circumstances, it's why we can forget to take medicines that are critical for our survival, or that why airline pilots can forget to put down the landing gear right before they land, even though just a few seconds or a few minutes earlier, they had every intention of doing that. And they had every expectation that they would remember to do that. So the failures of perspective memory can be of high consequence, and the successes of perspective memory allow for incredibly adaptive behaviors because you can organize in the present for the future. And so for us, looking at animal models of this uh, provides some unique insights into the evolutionary emergence of this type of capacity. These higher-level cognitive functions are thought to be unique to humans. However, Dr. Barron in his lab at Georgia State University is looking for the origins in non-human primate models. Well, we've approached perspective memory from really two different directions. With our monkeys, we've tried to do this using computerized tasks, and that's largely motivated by the human cognitive science literature, in which many of these tests involve computerized tasks in which humans are asked to sort 
uh, stimuli on the screen as being words or non-words, but they're given a specific instruction that a critical word might come up at some point. So the word banana may appear. And when it does, they're to make a unique response to say, okay, I've been also looking for that. And the idea here is that you, you then look at whether there is a a cost to having that prospective intention to be searching for that word and whether or not there are also benefits that occur in terms of the prospective memory with regard to the ongoing task. So for us, of course, it's not that simple. We can't just verbally instruct the animals to remember to do something. We've got to motivate them to do that and we often do this by giving them computerized tasks in which a certain uh, stimulus could appear or a certain context could occur in which they could get a very nice reward if they remember later to tell us that they had seen that. And we then give them uh, different kinds of tests that they do for multiple seconds or in some cases multiple minutes and we can embed within there a cue that, by the way, if you remember to do something at the end of this trial, we'll give you a nice bonus payoff. And we find that most monkeys can do that. They can notice these signals, that they can store that information, that they can retain it and then at a later time can tell us through their behavioral responses that they had in fact seen that, that uh, information. With our chimpanzees, we have a little more flexibility and, and we're very interested in uh, using larger spatial scales to get at this. So we've trained our chimpanzees that there are foods that they can retrieve in certain areas at later times. So those foods are not available now and the means of getting those foods are not available now. But if they can structure their behavior when they're in other locations and retrieve necessary materials, in our case we use lexigram symbols which are uh, geometric shapes that that approximate human words they use those to exchange with us to, to in essence buy food and we give them tests where we show them uh, early in the test session well later you can have this apple but for now you're going to go outdoors and you're going to do other things and if at some point you remember to come back in and, and interact with another experimenter and bring him or her that apple lexagram then you can you can get uh, an apple for that then we look at how well the animals encode that information how long they can retain it for and whether they implement the intention to retrieve that token deliver it to the person inside and obtain that food reward and they are successful but perspective memory for them like for us is fragile and it's not consistent and they don't always succeed they often make mistakes in bringing in the wrong token but they certainly perform better than chance levels and they give us some indication that on rather limited time scales of a few minutes or maybe 15 or 20 minutes that they can engage in a separate activity and when it's appropriate and on their own without queuing disengage from that activity come back indoors and act on that perspective memory. So earlier in the interview, through his examples, it was quite clear the importance of this work. But here, Dr. Barron's going to go on and talk about uh, some of the implications and how using those animal models can actually help us improve situations for humans in terms of aiding perspective memory. Yeah, for, for us, we are, we are interested in developing animal models for human perspective memory because uh, there are a lot of ways in which understanding more of the constituent cognitive processes that contribute to a perspective memory, to, to successful perspective memory would be very valuable. As I mentioned, uh, humans often fail in their perspective memory and sometimes those consequences are severe and so there's, there's great need, for instance, in finding ways for aged individuals to do a better job of maintaining their, their medicine regimens and taking their medicines at the right time and remembering that they still have to take a particular pill and also remembering that they've already taken that pill, which gets into really a nice comparison of prospective memory and retrospective memory. So oftentimes you look at individuals who can't remember if they've already taken the pill or not. And of course, there are ways around that. You can use pill boxes that have each of the pills at each of the times of day that you're supposed to take those things. But 
you do have to worry about whether you've already done something, whether you still need to do it, and you've got to keep those bits of information sort of straight in your own mind. And so with the animals, we're looking, we're looking for simpler tasks that would let us look at the basic cognitive processes that contribute to this. So attention, working memory capacity, vigilance, and things like that. And so as this was a special symposium uh, entitled The Science of Mental Time, we wanted to get back to this issue because obviously this is a metaphor. And metaphor in science, while useful, uh, especially in, in, in trying to convey uh, different types of scientific information to public, especially or make the information more accessible, um, they can have meaning. But at the same time, when you have this kind of metaphor, some of the components or operationally it may be difficult to define. And so whether or not that term is actually a useful um, construct for what these researchers are doing is, is kind of in question. Yeah, so is this term too abstract and philosophical and not entrenched strictly in scientific terminology? And Dr. Varon tackles this question in terms of saying whether or not it might be too premature to use the term mental time travel. I, I think I think the, the, the term mental time travel when applied to animals is a fascinating question. I think it's going to lead to a very productive line of research that's going to make use of a, a hopefully a wide range of animal species. I think right now it's a little premature to to attempt to answer that question dichotomously as yes or no, do animals have mental time travel? I think it's far too early for us to to provide an answer like that. And I'm not sure we ever could provide a yes or no answer to that. In the same way that I'm not sure there's a yes or no answer to the question of whether animals have language or whether animals have, have and can show metacognition or theory of mind. I suspect that there is a continuum on which different species fall. And I think that a comparative, a broad comparative perspective is going to provide a, a nice sort of uh, map of the evolutionary emergence of this in humans and that there may be unique aspects of human mental time travel. For instance, I, th I think it's possible that human perspective memory may be unique from that of other animals in the sense to which true spontaneous retrieval can, can occur without any sort of external cue. Animals may always require some degree of external cueing in order to evoke their perspective memories. Humans may not, although in many cases I think the external cue is, is what facilitates good human perspective memory. I also think that we may see some real differences in terms of the degree to which anticipating one's own future and in terms of which future-oriented mental time travel requires monitoring versus no monitoring. It may be the case that in humans there is little need for continuous monitoring for a future state that one somehow needs to meet. Whereas for animals there may be there may be real cognitive costs to anticipating the future. There may be uh, difficulties for an animal to maintain a future intention in the face of competing cognitive pressures that, that humans somehow have overcome. And whether that's through uh, greater working memory resources or whether that's through some sort of unique uh, memory system for encoding and storing information that provides easier access to spontaneous retrieval, we don't know yet. But I think those are the questions that, that should guide the field for the next few years or perhaps few decades before we get to a point where we start talking about mental time travel as an all-or-none phenomenon. Now, what I find really interesting towards the end of that interview there was when Dr. Barron mentioned that there are probably cognitive costs associated with the ability to anticipate the future. Now, it's not exactly what he was getting at. He was thinking of maybe more uh, demands on cognitive processes, but one of the audience members wanted him to elaborate a little bit on that um, because they found it interesting that in humans, 
one of the extreme potential costs of our ability to anticipate the future is the ability to anticipate our own death. Yeah, and how beneficial would it be for a non-human animal to anticipate that? Exactly. So in humans, we know that there's all kinds of problems associated with that. I mean, anxiety disorders and, well, one might even go so far as to talk about the origin of religion, for example, to allow us to maybe deal with this knowledge. But of course, this is strictly a philosophical uh, issue at the moment and, and, and not really a scientific one, so we'll just let it lie there. So we'd like to thank Dr. Barron for joining us on the Primate Cast for a fascinating conversation. So the next two interviews that we're going to present here are dealing with the topic of metacognition, which will be explained very, very elaborately and elegantly during the next two interviews. Now, much of this work or much of the leading work in this area, at least in non-human animal models, is coming out of the lab of Dr. Rob Hampton, who's at Emory University and works at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center. So now we're going to listen to one of his doctorate students, Emily Brown, give us a really great introduction on what metacognition is. So metacognition um, is thinking about thinking. So anytime that you have a cognitive process that uses another cognitive process as sort of the information input, that's metacognition. Emily had a brilliant example of how we can really easily picture metacognition in terms of a certain game show we all probably know. One really good sort of popular example of metacognition comes from the game show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, the contestant has two tasks. The first is to answer a cognitive question, which is the trivia question, of course, um, a memory test of some sort. You have to remember a fact. But there's a second judgment that's layered on. Every time that the contestant gives an answer, they also have to make a confidence judgment about whether they think that they're going to get it correct or not. Um, So if the contestant is confident that they've given the correct answer, then they'll say, that's my final answer. And then that goes to, to be judged whether they got it right or not. If the contestant is feeling less confident, then they might go through any number of possibilities to sort of improve their outcome. One thing that they can do is they can say, I quit, I'm out of the game. And if you quit, you get to take the money that you've already earned, which might be a smaller amount. And you avoid the opportunity to get a larger amount of money, but you also avoid losing everything. Um, You also have the opportunity on the show to get a hint if you want to. perhaps by pulling the audience or calling someone that you think might know the answer. So obviously it's not so easy for us to just go and throw a bunch of monkeys on that game show. So we asked Emily to elaborate on how she went about testing this. Indeed, we can't put the monkeys on who wants to be a millionaire. So um, we have two different paradigms that we've been using. The first sort of matches the I want to quit while I'm ahead um, option on the test which is the monkey has the opportunity to, before he takes the test, um, either say, yes, I want to take the test. And if he gets it right, then he gets a really big reward, two food pellets, which doesn't sound that great to us, but the monkeys love it. Um, But if he gets it wrong, then he gets a timeout. And during that timeout, the screen goes dark, and he doesn't get to play his video game. And he also doesn't have a chance to earn more food during that time. So if he thinks he's going to get it right, then he should take the test. But if he thinks he's going to get it wrong, he should um, choose the decline test option. And that gets you a small reward, just one food pellet, but it's a sure thing. 
So as she mentioned on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, the contestant can seek hints, pull the audience, and look for other clues on how to answer a question. So we asked Emily to tell us how exactly does she give monkeys that option in her experiments. Yeah, so we actually have a separate task where we give the monkeys an opportunity to seek and seek a hint if they don't think that they're going to succeed on the task. And that's equi not quite equivalent, but very similar to the hint option on who wants to be a millionaire. So in that case, the monkey has has a memory test in front of him, and if he does remember, then he can advance and take the test right away. If he um, makes some sort of judgment about his ability to succeed at that test and is, is less confident to anthropomorphize again, then he's going to seek the hint before he takes the test. And seeking the hint just is a button that allows him to review the sample image that he's trying to remember before he takes the test. So before you go off and start challenging monkeys on this game show, you might want to first listen to what Emily's been able to find about how these monkeys do. Um, well, we find a very similar pattern of performance across both the, um, the decline test and the get hint paradigm. And what we find is that the monkeys are much better at trials that they choose to take, which are presumably trials where they have very good memory, as compared with trials that they're forced to take, where we have taken away the option to get a hint or taken away the option to decline the test, um, which presumably consists of some trials that they will be very good at, that they would have accepted without the hint, uh, but also some, some trials where they would have asked for a hint or opted out had they given, been given the option. So we asked Emily if the ability to perform metacognitive tasks is something that's been established in non-human models. So the ability to decline tests and the ability to get hints um, to improve performance have both been found by, by other studies in the past. Um, what's sort of a little bit more new about what we've done is that we are directly comparing these two, two paradigms to see if the monkeys are perhaps relying on the same type of information to make those judgments. So before we go on, we asked Emily to describe what these two different tasks were, perspective and concurrent, and the different types of cues that may be involved. So when we ask our monkeys to make these metacognitive judgments, we can either ask for those judgments concurrently at the same time that they see the test, which would be more similar to the who wants to be a millionaire format. Or we can ask them to make that metacognitive judgment prospectively before they've seen the test. And we think that that's very important because different types of information are available at the time of that decision. With the concurrent choice, there could be some aspect of the test that helps to elicit some sort of response about the difficulty of the test. And that's, that sort of external cue is not available in the case of the prospective task, or it's, or it's very limited. In the case of the decline test paradigm, we find that the monkeys show a greater benefit when they're allowed to make a greater benefit from the metacognitive response when they're allowed to make that judgment concurrently than when they have to make it prospectively, although they do get an advantage from both. We see a similar but non-significant pattern of performance in the get hint response. So in the last part of the interview, we just asked Emily to take us through the next steps. Where does she go from here? The next step is to look at what sorts of cues more specifically the monkeys might be relying on in making those metacognitive judgments. So one possibility is that in the case of the concurrent task, they're using the same signal to make that metacognitive judgment or decide how confident they are as they are in the perspective task. Another possibility, though, is that the monkeys are using multiple systems. So perhaps they have 
one set of information when they're making the perspective task. Um, perhaps I've been thinking about, in advance, I've been thinking about trying to remember what the answer to the test question will be. Whereas in the concurrent choice task, they not only have that information available from thinking about the image to be remembered or the test that they're going to have, but they also have the test itself, which might elicit a second familiarity response. So that's the next step is to sort of break it down and, and test those hypotheses and really examine more carefully what types of cues the monkeys might be attending to across the tasks. Thanks, Emily, for joining us on the Primate Cast. It was a pleasure speaking with you. So now we're going to hear from her supervisor, Dr. Rob Hampton, and the director of the lab, also broadly interested in metacognition. But in this interview, you're going to hear him focusing in on the concepts of internal monitoring and cognitive control. I think one of the directions that we see this work really moving in is thinking uh, more about what the function of monitoring is. So, so it's very interesting to ask this question, do uh, other animals besides uh, human animals uh, have access to their internal cognitive processes to note what's going on there? But, uh, and that maybe ties into some, some questions about the evolution of consciousness, uh, for example. But in terms of function, what seems to be uh, uh, critical is that you use that monitoring to do something. And one of the things that you can do is try to adjust ongoing cognitive processing so that it is uh, adaptive. We asked Dr. Hampton to give us some examples in humans of cognitive monitoring and control. Uh, for example, uh, by uh, noting that you're ignorant about something that you need in order to carry out the next step in a behavior and correcting that, or uh, that you, uh, if you're monitoring your learning process, for instance, as a student, it's very important to, if you want to adaptively use your time as a student studying, to note, okay, some things I know already, I can stop, I can reallocate my effort uh, to learning other material. So through those examples, we can really see how this is very relevant to all of us, and we might even take it for granted, um, this, this need to keep things in mind when we're doing something, what happens when we get distracted. Um, but it's always a challenge to test whether, and if so, to what extent these kinds of things are occurring in other animals, non-human animals. And so we're going to hear about these really incredible experiments that Dr. Hampton does in his lab to approach these questions. One of the tasks that we teach monkeys that, uh, that basically all the monkeys in my lab uh, know now is a classification or categorization task where uh, we actually download fairly random pictures from the internet and teach them to uh, put them in categories as birds, fish, flowers, or people. So we, we make sure there's only one of those uh, uh, entities in the picture and then they, they are quite good at classifying them. Uh, so we've used that task in a number of different ways, but, uh, but one way we've, we've tried to uh, model this uh, process of learning and reallocating your effort is uh, to uh, hide those pictures behind a, a gray plaque that the monkey can gradually remove by touching a button. And what we want to ask is whether they uh, can adaptively do this so that they uh, remove enough of the picture that they finally know, okay, yes, there's a bird, uh, bird person, flower, or fish, uh, but don't necessarily have to remove all of the uh, blocking um, plaque. And so what we find is that if we, uh, for instance, change the uh, amount of information that each button press uh, reveals about the picture, they change the, the amount of effort they put into uh, pushing that button so that their um, 
able to protect their accuracy so they remove enough that they can achieve a high accuracy but but they don't waste their time removing too many blocks from the uh, image. Stemming from that they wanted to know what active processes are involved and what happens if a monkey gets distracted during a task. Well so the third experiment I talked about today uh, we we're looking at um, what goes on in an animal's memory uh, during a retention interval and uh, we know that uh, people, for instance, will, will sometimes hold in, uh, actively in mind information that they need. Uh, for instance, the route that you're going to have to drive in your car uh, to get to a particular destination. Or in the old days, uh, uh, before uh, cell phones that remembered for us, uh, remembering, for instance, phone numbers uh, over a brief period of time uh, as you went from looking it up in the phone book to dialing it, uh, for example. and um, so uh, what we've set up is some situations where we can look at how different kinds of information are retained in memory over short periods of time. And, and one thing that we've found is that uh, uh, certain kinds of stimuli anyway, um, uh, our monkeys, much like people, actively uh, hold those in mind. And we can, we can uh, determine that by, um, at the same time they're trying to remember, we ask them to do a different task. And again, we've used this, uh, we've become very fond of this classification task where the animals have to say whether it's a bird, fish, flower, person. We ask them to do that at the same time they're remembering. And in some tasks, uh, doing that concurrent uh, cognitive task interferes with their ability to, to hold the item in memory, which shows it's an active process. In other cases, they can passively remember without uh, uh, any active effort and when you ask them to do the classification task under those conditions it doesn't affect their performance at all. So this idea of active cognitive control it had me thinking um, so his examples of you know going from the phone book to dialing the, well maybe people don't do that so much anymore but going from the phone book to dialing a number you have to keep that number in mind and then what happens if you get distracted during uh, during the middle of that and uh, similarly when you need to get somewhere by car and you want some directions obviously pre-gps or pre-car navigation systems but anyways keeping those directions in mind then when there's all kinds of other things going on can be quite challenging and i know for myself personally uh, i just literally cannot do these things if i get distracted while trying to remember anything it's done yeah, I mean, personally, like if I park my car and I'm alone, it's much easier for me to remember where I parked it than if I go with a bunch of friends and we're chatting and then I'm going back to the car. Uh, does anybody remember where we were? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to see that the same processes seem to be happening in monkeys as well, uh, and at least in some of the tasks that Dr. Hampton has been able to show. To finish off this interview, Dr. Hampton tells us about why this might be really important for animals to do and, and what, how this might have evolved. It would be wonderful to know, uh, uh, not to know, but to have some better ideas about why these capacities exist and under what conditions they evolve. Um, and uh, the truth is, I think at this point, we don't really have good ideas, uh, and hopefully that's, that's something that younger scientists will come along and, and help us with, is coming up with some better ideas about what are the conditions under which active cognitive control would evolve. Um, and what we've done right now mostly is, is take kind of a phylogenetic approach that we, we take humans, it's, and it's, it's not only phylogenetic, it's anthropocentric, that we know something about humans and we ask, do other animals have these capacities? And so we're looking at our close relatives uh, for the most part, uh, but uh, hopefully in the future we'll have a more disciplined approach that uh, where we might think even in, in very distant really, distantly related animals we would see the evolution of cognitive control because we identify specific ecological situations in which it's important. 
We'd like to thank Dr. Rob Hampton for giving us an incredible interview. And also, we're going to now talk to some of his collaborators. One of them is actually from here. Yeah, that's right. And so the topic that we'll be discussing in the next two interviews is about spatial representation of order. Uh, and that's something that we commonly see in humans. So the way that we kind of associate uh, orders of things like numbers or sequences of events uh, onto space, or we map them onto space. Um, and so this may not be something that's unique to humans. Yeah, so the term for this is metaphorical mapping, and these two researchers that we're going to hear from now are looking for the origins of this in some non-human primate models. Right, and so one of them was a former student in Dr. Hampton's lab, Victoria Sampler, who's now assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Providence College. But before we do get to her, we're going to start with a good friend of ours here at uh, PRI, Dr. Ikuma Adachi, who's going to tell us about his work. All right, so what I want to know is whether or not uh, other non-human animals also like uh, mapping the ordinary information on the space. In humans, it's very much known that like we um, map the other information on the space. Like uh, if you think about one to nine for the numerals, you also think about like one go to the left, nine go to the right. And this kind of the mental number lines very much well documented. So we want to know if the other non-human primates also have similar mental representation for the order. So then we asked Ikuma to tell us of a pretty famous example on how to illustrate this uh, spatial representation of this concept. Uh, the originally, uh, the task uh, asked the people to judge either its uh, number is even or odd. And the condition is interesting, so always the task is the same, but in a different condition, sometimes they have to answer by right hand, sometimes left hand. And what they found is whenever they answer to the small number, by left hand, that's quicker than the opposite cases. So that's how it started, like a people somehow associate number order onto the space. It's originally an embodied space, but later on it comes to the more in general, in the space, in your outside or inside, doesn't matter, but left is smaller and the right is bigger in, the, in the, most of the culture. So then we wanted to know how Ikuma goes about testing this in non-human uh, primate models. So we got him to tell us about his work with chimpanzees. So um, in the primate research industry, we already have the chimpanzee who are trained to touch uh, multiple objects from the certain uh, in a certain order. Like uh, we actually use Arabic numerals, so one to nine. They are trained to touch from the smaller numerals to the bigger number. And in a training, we always use a random location. So they have no way to learn specific association to the certain space and the order. But in a test trial I provided, we just use the horizontal arrangement. Half of the time they have the small number on the left and the bigger number on the right. And in the other half we have flipped. I compare the, their performance between those two conditions. And that's why, uh, that's how I tested the, this mental mapping on a space uh, in the chimpanzees. Then Ikuma went on to tell us what the results of this experiment were. And what I found is their performance in the latency is better when the number is aligned from left to right. So this is kind of similar to the human um, document or human literature, means chimpanzee also mapped the numerical order, doesn't have the numerical, the ordinary information from left to right onto the space. So it's kind of overlapped information, it's just integrated in the brain, that's kind of suggested. So it's pretty th interesting to think about the 
that chimpanzees also have the same kind of uh, capacity to put in numbers. It's not something that they would come across very often in their natural environment, sequences of numbers that humans use, obviously, all the time. But yet they say have the same kind of response and the same kind of processing going on to put them, map them into space. But Ikuma kind of took this into another step, uh, looking at something that might actually be a little more ecologically relevant to the animals themselves in a study that he did with a former postdoc here, Dr. Christoph Dahl. Uh, and what they were interested in is whether or not they would also map relationships, social relationships between individuals into space. Another experiment I did is uh, focusing on the rank and the space. And what I did is just simply train them or ask them to identify the individual. So whenever they see the uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a trial, they are exposed to one picture first, and then later it's gone, and two pictures are shown side by side, it's not side by side, they're next to each other in a uh, vertical um, arrangement. And what they have to do is just simply identify the stimulus or the individual that they saw before. And what I did is or what I focus is this arrangement of the comparison means the two pictures in a test phase affect uh, the performance on the individual or in the subject or not. And what I found is when the dominant individuals are located on the top and subordinate located on the bottom, their performance is better. But if it's flipped, then their performance is lower. It, uh, it's no matter what the, what the sample is. So it's not simply the Taking that picking the top one is easier or picking the bottom one is easier. It's just whenever the comparisons are in the arrangement of the high rank on the top, low rank on the bottom, that's easier for them. Then we asked Ikuma to kind of hypothesize about what the broader implications are of his work. Okay, um, so uh, for me, the starting point is a bit different because I start to focus on this issue because this is so to be a part of the me uh, conceptual metaphor which is connected to language evolution. And uh, many people believe that this kind of overlap between the space and order and time uh, could be a seize for the, or co-evolved the language, because we often use those words, phrase, like uh, even we talk about a distant for the two different items in uh, order. But distant is a word for the space. And rank is often described as a high and low. And we regularly use this uh, space information to describe the some other domains. And uh, people just start to discuss about like why this happened, and this is thought to be a kind of co-evolution of language. Then I just think about it: what is a function, real function of this overlap? Then I just thought, wait a minute: those relational information, order, time, anything like that, is not visible. And to understand those information more concrete way, it will be advantageous for the animals, including human, to think about something more concrete: plate, or plane, or platform. So that could be a space, and that's how start, I, I started this, uh, I, how I start focus on this issue. Yeah, so really interesting stuff there from Ikuma, and uh, it is quite fascinating to see that they that the chimpanzees also map those, those kind of social relationships uh, into vertical space. And it did come up in the discussion period, I think, with a, an audience member asking whether or not in the enclosures here at PRI, or as an extension of that, even in the natural conditions, would dominant chimpanzees tend to occupy higher locations, you know, in the canopy or here in the, the structures built for enrichment purposes? And I think the answer to that was, well, not really. We don't at least observe it here. 
I don't know that, that any studies have done that type of analysis in the wild. So it is a possibility to think about it, and that may um, give some, some relevance uh, to why we might see this in chimpanzees. And we'd really like to thank uh, Dr. Adachi for joining us here at the Primate Cast, for taking the time to do that. And now we're going to listen to Dr. Victoria Templar on her work on the same topic. So she starts by talking about the different research paradigms that she uses. Um, so I use a couple different paradigms. Um, the ones I spoke about, um, so one of them is similar to Dr. Adachi's, where um, animals have to order stimuli on a screen in a particular predefined order, much like you would do, a human would just know to do A, B, C, D, E in the alphabet. Um, so it's a predetermined order and it is not dependent on location because the images change where they are on the screen. So that is sort of like a routinized order or an order that you might take in your daily routine or um, something that you do in a repeated experience. Um, you always do it in the exact same order. Um, so what I've done is compare that representation of that type of order to representation for more unique orders. Um, so orders naturally occur in our world when we experience things. There's just a natural flow of time and events that we experience and then later remember those. Um, so I'm interested in comparing those two types of orders to each other in addition to other orders. Um, so the basic idea is that we have, we order many things in the world just naturally. So Dr. Adachi was also saying that we, um, even humans, we represent things left to right. So if I was drawing you a picture of events unfolding throughout your day, I'd put a picture of you eating breakfast in on the left and then on the right it would be what happened more recently. So we do that naturally, we map it onto space. And so um, I'm interested if monkeys do map map um, their representations of order onto space or in general not necessarily onto space but is it a linear representation and um, what is the nature of that cognitive representation. And so right away you can see quite a few differences in the experimental setup and maybe a bit of fundamental differences in the approach uh, between Victoria and and uh, Ikuma's work. So now she's going to go on and tell us about the results of her studies. What we find in um, a couple different order tasks, there's also another order task, I didn't actually speak about it in my talk, but um, there's another type of order as well where there's hierarchies, so A is dominant to B, B is dominant to C, and you can make an inference that, dominant, that A is dominant to C. Um, and so in a bunch of different order tasks, like the unique events that happen, um, in your day, for example, the orders that you take that are very routinized, just responses that you always say A, B, C, D, E, and also in those inference examples, in a lot of ordinal tasks, what we see is this monotonic relationship where you're, it's easier to remember things that are more distantly separated. And so I say distantly, which is interesting because I'm using space right now just to say that it is... Um, I'm using space to explain something that's distance, but it could also be time. It could also be a bunch of different factors. It could also just be that it's separated by more events or, um, you know, sort of events or responses in between. So 
you could use distance, you could use time, you could events use events to explain that separation. Um, and so that's why I'm fundamentally interested in order. Um, and so what we find is that it's easier to discriminate um, things that are more widely separated than those that are closer. Um, so obviously this gets into how memory works and operates. And so Victoria came up with some elegant experiments to test whether similar representations of order exist in monkeys. So what we can do is we give them um, tests where they have two, say, images, and they are rewarded for selecting the one that comes earlier. Um, and so what we see is that they do better when it's, say, the first image they saw versus the fifth image they saw, and you tell me which one you saw earlier, you're much, much easier to say that one came before five than it is to say that one came before two. So we, that's something called the symbolic distance effect. And so we see that across all tasks. We also see it in the um, task where you have to choose A, B, C, D, E in that defined order of response task that Dr. Adachi uses also. So we also see symbolic distance effect in that case as well where you give paired tests and the, the goal is to order two images. So if you have, um, you have the first image and the last image um, and you're used to say selecting five images in a predefined order, always A, B, C, D, E, and then randomly I'm just gonna give you A and E on one trial, how fast is it gonna take you to order those? How reliable are you gonna be by selecting A and then E? or so you're more reliably going to select A and then E than you are to select A and then B, which is interesting because you'd think that you should be really good at the ones that are adjacent, that you're used to selecting normally when you have the five item sequence. And so we asked Victoria to closing out the interview here, what kind of the broader implications of her work is and, and where that's going. And it's quite interesting. You'll see when she's describing it, but, uh, in terms of this spatial mapping and the, of the order of things, she starts talking about two different things. So the distance effect where like the amount of time that occurs between two events might have something to do with it, but also the number of things that occur in the interim. And so here you'll hear her talking about those two. So one interesting thing that I have found, um, as I was saying before, we use order as um, sort of a way to look at what we mean by the distance between two things. Is it about space? Is it about time? Is it about just the separation of events happening by other things happening in between them? So it's sort of a silly example, but say that you're, you're in your house in the morning and then you do a couple activities in your house and then you go outside and I ask you, what did you do earlier or when did you do a certain activity? it's easier to discriminate that you did something because you know you were in your house when you were brushing your teeth or something like that. Um, so um, so what we I have done in monkeys is um, try to determine what allows them to remember when events occurred. So what contributes to that representation of order and being able to select an earlier image and tell me what you experienced earlier. Um, and what I did in one of my experiments was try to tease apart just the passage of time, so just blank time happening from when one thing happens to when another thing happens in comparison to when things happen in that exact same time that occurred when nothing happened. So if you are just 
say sitting on the beach and you're just sitting there and, and nothing happens and then you go snorkeling later. That's sort of like an empty time period where if you go snorkeling and then you go sailing and then you go fishing and you do all these other things and then you sit on the beach. And what it turns out is that what we find in monkeys is that they're bettering at, better at remembering when something happened, when more happens. So in some ways it's counterintuitive because there's actually more to remember, there's more things that you did to remember, but what we think it is is that it's just more discriminable because there's been more of a context change, there's been, so there's more stuff happening is sort of just a way to say it simply, is more stuff happening actually helps you encode or separate time. So it's not just time percept, time alone passing, time is important just in relation to stuff happening. Time perception alone doesn't really tell you much or help your memory. It's, it's time makes sense just because more stuff happened in that time. And that is what allows you to remember things and remember when something happened or remember what happened. Um, so I think that is, that is cool because I guess it gets into time perception and the fact that time alone is not really that meaningful unless things are happening so that you can discriminate um, when things occurred or what occurred. So our thanks to Dr. Victoria Templer and all of the guests on this uh, installment of the podcast. And for anybody who's interested to in finding out more about our, our guests and their research, current, past, future research, you can follow the links which are found on the website for our podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode in this series of podcasts from the JSAP. And we're going to hear about prosociality and non-human animals. Okay, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.